a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is the place to come if you want to uh, think about things clearly and independently. And our program is brought to you by great sponsors like HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and GovernYourCrypto.com. Pleased to welcome Eric Peters back to the show. Hi, Eric. How are you doing today? Well, I'm pretty good. Uh, I'm uh, wondering how they're going to uh, find a cure for the thing that cured the Rona. Right. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> you, I watch your tweets pretty closely. I follow you on Twitter. Yep. And I have seen tweet after tweet of young people with mysterious stroke symptoms or blood clots or heart attacks or just sudden death yep. that have popped up here. Talk to me about your reaction. What What are you seeing and, and what uh, – what doesn't seem to follow the authoritative narrative? Well, I'm having the same reaction that I hope that anybody who isn't completely blinkered would be having, meaning that I'm alarmed by uh, the daily or weekly uh, cropping up of these cases of not just young people, but elite athletes who are developing these unusual um, uh, maladies, things that you've never heard about people in that age group getting, or if you heard about them, you heard about them extremely rarely, things like heart inflammation. That's technical term for that, I guess, is myocarditis or, or pericarditis, the inflammation of the heart, uh, the lying around the heart. And, you know, you juxtapose that with the admission, even though it hasn't been covered much by, I think, I think Pfizer admitted it, that, oh yeah, hmm, in very rare cases, uh, people who've been jabbed may develop myocarditis. Uh, hmm, what do you think that could imply? Could there be a problem here? And I, I was watching something the other day as well, about some of the actuarial data that's coming out about the uh, surge in deaths, particularly in the 25 to 44-year-old cohort, which apparently is up uh, a very, very alarming number relative to the prior year or, or any year prior to that. And it's pretty clear to me, you know, that something is up or at least something should be looked into. You know, ordinarily you'd think that if there was a car out there, let's say, and uh, it seemed to have a predisposition um, for, uh, I don't know, burning up or something. And of course, Tesla's accepted. You'd think people say, hmm, wait a minute, there might be something wrong with this car. Maybe uh, the thing to do is to stop selling these cars, and maybe we ought to have somebody look at it and see what the problem is. Or if there is a problem, if there isn't, fine, let them continue to sell it. But if there isn't, uh, out of a, a you know out of all due concern for people's lives, let's make sure before we can keep putting people into these things. No, I, I'm with you on this, and it's it's disturbing because um, as much as as it appears, you know, well, hey, look, the, they switched off the pandemic. Suddenly, it's it's over, like yeah. flipping off a light switch. But the the yeah. measures, the lockdown measures, and the powers, the emergency powers that were claimed by people in authority, still remain. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's not like the danger has gone away. And I don't mean the danger from the virus. I mean the danger from the people in authority. Sure. Uh, they are still clinging to this and uh, just waiting for the decision to be made that it's time to reboot the Rona and reinstitute the lockdowns. You and I were talking about that a little bit off the air, and you gave me a, 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 an interesting little meme or quote that you found from our good friend at the WEF, 
Klaus Schwab, with whom I talked about a little bit. Yeah, it's it's the idea that, uh, you know, we, you know, don't ask too many questions or we'll have to turn the pandemic back on again. But, but mm-hmm. it, something that was pointed out to me recently that I thought was very interesting is all those cries about follow the science. We assumed that they were talking about medical science. But no, it was yeah. it was political science. Follow the political science. And suddenly it all starts to make a whole lot more sense why these measures came and went the way they did. You remember uh, somebody said, you know, at the very early stages of this a year or so ago, that uh, you know, if you just stop watching TV, there's no, there's no pandemic, right? Uh, if if you just look at what's actually happening in the world around you, and it speaks to the fact that they can just turn this stuff on and off at will. You know, the pandemic existed because it was this constant coverage, endlessly about the cases, the cases, and Fauci and Walensky, who have, of course now disappeared. And the corollary to that is that they can just shut it off anytime they want to, and boom, there's no pandemic. And then they can switch it on again, and only this time, and this time it's a, a Putin is a pandemic, right? right? You know, they've got everybody whipped up and hysterical, hysterical about what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, literally programming. It's interesting that they use that word in, in the television world. You know, it, it has a dual meaning. Yeah, it's all about what's on TV, but it's also about what they want you to think because they're programming you to think a certain way. Boy, that sounds about right. And, and that's, that's why programs like mine exist. That's why websites like yours exist, among other things, to help people find their equilibrium in a world where it is so hard to tell what is true and what isn't anymore. Well, there is one uh, like a star in the night sky, if you will, that you can uh, look at and, and follow with absolute certainty, or at least very close to certainty. And that's if these same outlets are screeching that something is good and something is bad, you can be pretty sure it's the reverse. You know, these same people now who are screeching about Putin and uh, how he's absolutely good and Zelensky is absolutely bad. And, uh, there's no nuance, you know, just have to have to march in lockstep to that. These are the same people who told us that masking is good and vaccines good. And, you know, we now know the truth about that. So I, I think it's a very good, good way to judge situations by just saying if these people are for it, I'm probably against it or at least suspicious about it. Well, and, and, you know, not to delve into dangerous territory here, but one of the reasons why you don't see me flying the Ukraine flag or otherwise emoting on mm-hmm. social media about how I stand with Ukraine is because the yeah. people who are urging me to do so are the same people who are urging me to lock down, mask up, socially distance and Correct. stay home. Exactly right. Exactly right. Uh, and there, there's just a fatuity to it. It's not that I'm not uh, conscious of. The, the suffering that's going on on both sides over there. You know, I don't like to see that. Nobody likes to see that. But it's almost maudlin for these people to just preach and, and, and posture and virtue signal about something in this abstract way that has no, has no real force or effect, does it? You know, to walk around wearing a T-shirt saying, I stand with Ukraine. It reminds me of, remember Boston Strong? And oh, yeah. we're all in this oh, together. Yeah, yeah it's, just, it's just sort of this vapid moralizing. That, that people seem to be very prone to in this country that I find very off-putting. Well, and there are some very legitimate uh, things that we should be concerned about, and I don't mean frightened or otherwise panicked, but um, I'm looking at, uh, for instance, the uh, financial uh, tomfoolery, you know, of, of government urging the, the people who hold positions of power and, and the systems within the financial system, hey, this person's uh, opinions are bad. Can you freeze their account? Would you shut them down? And they're doing it. Well, sure. Sure. We're worried about, you know, we're, we're trying to be convinced to be worried about Putin as this great tyrant danger. I think we need to look closer to home. I, I think we've got our hands full 
with the tyrants right here in the United States who have imposed all of the uh, suffering and misery on the people of this country and who, frankly, we need to hold these people accountable and stop trying to worry about what's going on in another corner of the world that, frankly, uh, we have little ability to do anything about regardless. Are we going to uh, trigger World War III over this? You know, it's a serious question. It's not about, oh, you know, what's happening to the poor Ukrainians. Fine, the Ukrainians, great, poor Ukrainians. Are we going to burn the world down over the Ukraine? You know, it reminds me about what happened prior to World War I. Uh, when the whole world essentially was plunged into this apocalyptic, apocalyptic war over Serbia. And it's not, it's not sympathetic to Serbia, but there is an element of proportionality and, and reason that should be applied to situations like this. No, I'm I'm with you. And and lest anybody misunderstand what we're doing, it's we're not bagging on the Ukrainians. We're not downplaying that, yeah, there are people suffering and, and dying and being displaced and so forth. But it's very curious that so much of the mass media organs of our time and, and even social media are hyper-focusing on, you know, you have to look at this, you have to believe this, you have to chant in unison. Mm-hmm. What were you telling me about Google is now taking it upon itself to, to help us see the light, yep. so to speak? Sure, the same exact methodology that was used to combat what they styled misinformation and what you and I like to teasingly call wrong think. Uh, regarding everything having to do with all the sickness kabuki, the, the, the wearing of the masks, then the vaccines, the social distancing, all of that. Remember when anybody who questioned that uh, was considered some kind of threat to public safety and they would delete videos, including videos done by professional people, doctors who questioned some of this and pointed out some of the flaws with it. Well, they're doing the same thing now with anything having to do with the Ukrainians and, and the situation uh, over there. Uh, we're only to be allowed to, to, to read authoritative sources. And, you know, anything that, that raises a hand or points out an incongruity, that's misinformation. So once again, we're, we're to be treated like imbecile children who are not allowed to have access to certain information and to make up our own minds. Yeah, and, and it's not just misinformation. You're Putin's stooge because you're, you're questioning. Yeah, that's actually the, the most – that is the thing that troubles me, I think, the most about what's going on now. You know, previously during the Rona stuff, it was just, oh, you're, you know, you don't care about granny. You want granny to die. Now they're beginning to talk about you know, any about this whole thing of anybody who questions the narrative about what's going on over in Ukraine as, as you say, Putin poodle and a, tra- a traitor. You know, treating. Let's come back to this just the other side of the break because that's you, you've touched on a nerve that that I've been uh, mm-hmm. uh, feeling uh, some pain in lately. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. I have a link in the show notes to his website. We'll continue our conversation just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. All right, Eric, uh, you you hit on Mm -hmm. something that has been just absolutely under my skin for the last few days, and that is how anyone who questions the official narrative of uh, what's going on in Ukraine uh, is is not only just being doubted as, you know, being out of touch with, with reality or misled or spouting misinformation, but they're actually using words like traitor. That's, that seems yeah. like a pretty strong escalation. Well, yeah, it is, and it's, it's one that ought to really alarm people because, uh, after all, if you're a traitor, if you have committed treason, that makes you a criminal, doesn't it? It's a serious charge uh, under our system of law. Um, and it's the kind of thing that they can use as a pretext to not only deplatform you and demonetize you, 
but to, to put you in jail, right? I mean, they round you up. Uh, what do they do with traders? They round traders up and they put them in, in, in clinks and they, they prosecute them. Uh, and uh, boy, that, that really worries me that we're getting to the point in this country where anybody who questions what the narrative is, and it's not just this Ukraine stuff, this is a principle, and that's why I harp on this stuff. If they can claim that objecting to this policy somehow makes you traitorous, then they can claim that objecting to any policy makes you traitorous. And we arrive at this, this horrific point where we have to just shut up out of fear of being rounded up by boom squads and taken off to, to a prison someplace for daring to question whatever the official narrative is about anything. Well, I don't want to sound too conspiratorial, but I really believe that is the, that's the end game, is to make any form of dissent the equivalent of, of being a traitor and, and thereby to silence sure. you know, voices of dissent. Sure, we got a prequel of that, didn't we, in Canada just a couple of weeks ago before Putin bad Ukraine good. Uh, you know, we had this, this we had this thing where people who didn't even participate in the perfectly lawful and entirely peaceful trucker protest, all those guys did was do what they are permitted to do under Canada's law, which is to uh, express their grievances publicly and peacefully. They did that. Well, uh, Trudeau, the Fuhrer of Canada, decided that he didn't like that. And not only did he use force to break that up, he sicked the goon squads, uh, so to speak, the finance goon squads, on anybody who even donated 50 bucks these truckers and had their bank account seized and you know think about what that does to free speech and the idea that you know you might want to question something that's going on and you know if you're literally ruined if they can just take everything you have because you expressed disagreement with something that the government is doing yeah it's got me thinking very seriously about other means of storing value besides just keeping money in the bank. I, I, I'm taking a hard look at cryptocurrency for the, for the first time. I mean, really taking a hard look just because it's something government's saying, you really shouldn't have that, or at least we need to be in well, control you know, of it. <laughs> I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to part ways with you a little bit on that. I'm very leery of anything that is electronic currency, anything that is online that you don't have physical possession of, because if it's online, it seems to me that whoever controls that, uh, that format can uh, and seize it from you at the stroke of a keyboard. Whereas if you have physical money, particularly silver and gold, as long as you have it in your physical possession, and as long as somebody doesn't kick down your door to steal it, it's very hard to take it away from you. No, I don't disagree with you on it. Like like I say, for me, the, the main thing is somebody in power doesn't want me to have it, and I'm not about to go put all of my money into crypto, but the fact that they don't want yep. me to have it makes me want to have it more than ever. Yeah. At least, at least a portion it's, it's, of it. It's, 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 to get back to Putin, I wanted to make a point that occurred to me the other day. It's very interesting that you know we live in a country now where it's very clear, uh, I think, to anybody who has their head at all screwed on straight, that the the leadership class of this country is working at odds uh, against the people of this country to uh, terrorize them, to diminish them, to impoverish them. You, know, you can enumerate so many things that. Uh, that prove the point from the you know the deliberate and artificially created spike in energy prices to inflation and so on and so on. These people are our enemies, the government, I mean. Whereas, you know, Putin, for all of his faults, he seems to be a guy who's acting in the interests of the Russian people. He's trying to, you know, prevent uh, what he perceives to be a threat to his country and to his people um, from developing beyond a certain point. And, you know, I give him a grudging respect for that. I'm not saying I like the guy. I'm saying I respect what he's doing. And I think he's actually more interested in the in, in the Russian people than our leadership is interested in the American people. 
No, I'm I'm with you on that, and and I, I wish more people uh, weren't so you know caught up in the the passive absorption of whatever the mass media is beaming at them, and and more actively involved. But then again, that's why you and I do what we do. Yeah. Now let's let's shift well, for a moment. It's important. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was going to add one one final thought. Uh, and this is because you and I are on the conservative libertarian side of things, and I think probably the most of the people who listen to us uh, are on that side as well. And I think for us, it's particularly important to not be taken in by this faux patriotism, this this flag-waving, raw lying stuff that distracts conservatives and libertarians quite often and gets them to side with the very thing that is oppressing them, meaning the government. You know, I wanted to, to get your take on, uh, of course, high gas prices, something everybody is feeling right now. Uh, Pete Buttigieg hit a particularly uh, flat oh, note last week. Yeah. Talk to me about uh, his comment about, well, you know, here's why you need an electric car. Yeah, it's interesting that every time the government makes energy more expensive, the solution the government trots out is to make transportation more expensive. So uh, Buttigieg thinks that the way to uh, to, to deal with the $6 a gallon of gas is to go out and spend forty or $50,000 on an electric car. <laughs> That's how these people think. Uh, they're either economically illiterate or there's something much worse than that. And I'm inclined to think that there's something much worse than that, meaning that they know perfectly well that average people, most people, cannot afford to spend forty or $50,000 on an electric car and that it represents for them not only an economic diminishment, but also a mobility diminishment. Because most people, you know, this is not commonly known amongst the elites in Washington and San Francisco and L.A., but most people in this country don't live in San Francisco and Washington and L.A. in these big cities. And so they need to actually be able to drive distances for which electric cars are not suited. And they do not have the time to sit around constantly waiting for their electric car to recharge. Now, the whole thing is absolutely preposterous, but it's also pernicious because I do believe uh, that these people who are pushing all of it understand what they're doing. And what they're trying to do is to reduce the mobility of average Americans. No, it's it really feels like we're, it's, it's kind of a soft lockdown of sorts, you know, with the high gas prices. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely reassessing, you know, how often and how far I'm willing to travel, which well, translates to how much am I willing to pay for the privilege of being mobile? Sure. And, you know, of course, the next thing that they're going to use, if this doesn't work, if the high gas price thing doesn't work, then they'll declare climate change lockdowns. They're already talking about that. So, you know, any time that the temperature is higher than 75 degrees out, they're going to say, oh, no, the sky's falling. You, you know, it's a code red day. You're not allowed to drive today. Everybody's locked down. That's the kind of thing that they're probably going to try next. Dang. Well, is there is there any good news on the horizon? We've got a little over a minute left. Is is there anything that gives you a sense of confidence or hope as we're moving forward in the week? Yeah, absolutely. I, As much as a lot of people are falling for this, I think a lot of people are done falling for it. Um, and I, I don't mean just the Rona. I mean the Russia thing and everything. And I think that this is going to blow its steam pretty quickly. Uh, you know, they, They're very good at whipping up the initial hysteria. But after a couple of weeks of it, it starts to tamp down a little bit and people start to look at it a little bit more closely. So, you know what? This is, you're not telling me the whole story. You're, you're trying to manipulate me into doing something. You did it to me before, and I'm not going to have it done to me again. You know, that whole thing about fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, shame on you. I think more and more people all the time, every single day, are becoming more aware of the nature of the gigantic con that's been visited on them, and they've had enough of it. Well, 
here's a clink. <laughs> here's me, you know, mm-hmm. raising a toast to uh, clear thinkers and people who are willing to buck, yep. buck the trend. And Eric, websites like yours are, are a great resource. Tell people where to find it and what they can expect to find. Sure. It's epautos.com. And gosh, we have a, a, an aggregation of practically anything. Uh, there are articles there about uh, new cars, which I test drive every week. I also advice about car buying and, and car repair. And uh, we also have fun articles about classic cars and used cars. And then, of course, we also have a lot of stuff that's more serious having to do with some of these, these philosophical and moral issues that you and I like to talk about. Well, and I'm going to I'm going to give a quick plug here for uh, the commenters on your website. I learn a lot from them as well. I learn a lot from what you write, but I also learn from the people who comment on what you write. Oh, I do as well. Uh, I am blessed to have a number of highly intelligent and well, uh, well-versed people who teach me something every day as well. Okay, it's epautos.com. Eric, thanks for being on the show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Now, you probably noticed I I have taken an interest in crypto here lately. And it's not because I'm so scientific and, boy, I just know everything about everything. And I'm saying everybody who does know about crypto is like that. But, man, there's a lot to learn, and it's a pretty steep learning curve. But I'll tell you, I just can't get out of my head what I saw happen in Canada a few weeks ago and what I see us setting ourselves up for in terms of some central bank digital currency that uh, government ultimately controls or at least controls the population through, you know, a social credit score, something like that. Basically, I'm looking at, uh, I know this word gets tossed around a lot, electronic fascism. And when you have a purely digital currency, especially one that is subject to government control, come on, tell me that that isn't going to invite somebody who needs to have a little more control over the people uh, to to use the system to their advantage. I'm sorry, Mr. Hyde, but your opinions uh, seem to be a little bit on the uh, uh, extreme side here, so uh, we're going to just freeze your account. The funny thing is, I think I saw, I think it was yesterday, I saw a, a newspaper headline that said something to the effect of some of those people whose accounts were frozen and then later unfrozen, you know, in, in relation to the Canadian trucker proc- uh, protest, they will still carry with them for life some kind of a financial black mark, at least as long as they're within those systems. So that's what's got me thinking about alternatives. And, and by the way, I'm just going to tell you right up front, I don't think cryptocurrency is the answer, but I definitely think it is one of the answers for decentralizing that control I think uh, physical ownership of commodities is a way to go, whether that be gold, silver, copper, brass, lead, seeds, tools, land, you know, farmable land. But, uh, but I know that uh, we, are, we are in a very precarious place right now, and it appears that uh, the powers that be are trying to manipulate the monetary system in their favor. And with a digital currency, they can manipulate it pretty far. Again, we've seen evidence of this. So maybe you've got some red flags waving, too, in terms of how money's being used to control us. Well, I've got a great article by Joseph Tech rather, Joseph Tech, on how crypto is insurance against a state gone rogue. 
Now, specifically, he's talking about Bitcoin, but I'm going to give you just a couple of excerpts from this article. This is from, uh, this was reprinted on Zero Hedge. It's actually from uh, Joseph Tetek via Bitcoin Magazine. And the idea here is that the immutable value storage via Bitcoin is our best defense against overreaching governments. In fact, the headline here is Bitcoin is insurance against a state gone rogue. And it starts with a quote from Satoshi Nakamoto, which, uh, if you don't know, was is credited as kind of being the inventor of Bitcoin. Nakamoto said it would have been nice to get this attention in any other context. WikiLeaks has kicked the hornet's nest and the swarm is headed toward us. And thanks to Joe Biden's executive order, yep, it's very clear. The U.S. government, among others, are setting their sights on how can we not only control cryptocurrency, but put in something of our own that is a digital currency that uh, basically, how can I put this delicately? Everybody has to participate or they will not buy or sell. That sound familiar? <laughs> I don't know. Something about a mark in their hand and their forehead? I, gee, where have we heard that before? All right. The article says a clash between Bitcoiners and the establishment has been around the corner for a long time. Satoshi's quote above issues a common concern over the inevitable conflict. We all wish for the masses to first learn about Bitcoin as the neutral money that it is, not as a tool that aids potentially controversial causes. But the state won't accept a fair competition between fiat and non-state money because fiat would inevitably lose. So instead, it will try to portray Bitcoin and its proponents as the enemies of civil society. And I love the next subheadline. No one expects the Canadian Inquisition. Great Monty Python reference there. Uh, recent, recent developments in Canada have been instrumental in our understanding of how the conflict between Bitcoiners and the state can proceed. Joseph says, for those not familiar with the situation, I recommend this recent article by Jesse Willems. In Canada, he says, we witness a non-surprising failure of centralized fundraising platforms, but the Bitcoin-based fundraiser also had its shortcomings. Admittedly, nobody expected that the Canadian government would quell a peaceful protest and its supporters with such a heavy-handed approach. So it's understandable that the organizers weren't overly paranoid when setting the whole thing up. Now, even though the Bitcoin-based fundraiser could navigate around the censorship that legacy platforms and payment systems have to conform to, it still encountered severe problems. First, the identities of the organizers are known. So the distribution of funds to the protesters could now become an offense. Sadly, this seems to be the case, as shown in Nobody Caribou's tweets, which is shown below. Second, the fundraiser Bitcoin addresses are known and promptly became subject to a government blacklist. So regulated institutions could no longer accept funds from such addresses. This limits the fungibility of the funds, even if they find their way to the individual protesters. And third, blockchain analysis could reveal the donors' addresses and potentially also their identities if the addresses were linked to a regulated exchange. These donors could then become a target of government harassment in various forms, prosecution or employment problems, frozen accounts, tax audits. So here's the tweet that, uh, that he's referencing. Looks like I'm a defendant in a class action lawsuit now. I guess that's the cost for helping support freedom-loving, law-abiding, peaceful Canadians who just wanted to be heard by politicians. Freedom isn't free. Might need to start a tally coin to raise funds for legal help. This was from uh, at Nobody Caribou. So Nobody Caribou took it upon himself to distribute the raised funds to individual protesters. Now he's being sued by the government. 
Now, from here, the article goes on to talk about self-custody is is a necessity, but it doesn't end there. Joseph Tatek says the Canadian government has chosen to employ a nasty tactic of weaponizing the financial system against the protesters and their supporters. Bank accounts of truckers and and some supporters have been frozen, putting these individuals along with their families in a critical situation. This alarming overreach in a G7 country, moreover, proves what Bitcoiners have been pointing out for years. That today's monetary system is far from neutral and can become subject to politically motivated censorship. Now, the true nature of Bitcoin and the banking system is where he goes next. And this is worth a read. One of the most powerful aspects of Bitcoin is its neutrality. Anyone in the world can use it without asking for permission. Bitcoin has thus empowered individuals that would never be granted such permission, individuals like the dissenters in oppressive regimes or Afghani women. By the way, there are links to two examples of this. But to fully leverage Bitcoin's capabilities of censorship resistance, two basic rules need to be adhered to. First one is self-custody. If you don't hold your own keys, you don't own Bitcoin. As Kraken CEO Jesse Powell uh, recently pointed out, an exchange will always comply with government requests to hand over customer data, along with their funds. The only way to to mitigate this risk is to withdraw all coins from any exchanges you may use. Isn't that something? Number two is privacy. Bitcoin by itself can be used privacy, but when users link their real-world identity to their Bitcoin addresses... They lose that option. Buying Bitcoin at exchanges that ask for user IDs leads to privacy loss as all transactions are trackable via Bitcoin's public blockchain. So the exchange knows the user's withdrawal addresses and all the subsequent addresses where the funds are moved to. Now, there are tools like CoinJoin to break these links and regain the lost privacy. But he says the best option is to never lose that privacy in the first place. Learn to buy Bitcoin without doxing yourself. Self-custody combined with privacy is crucial, not only because of possible government overreach, but also because of the private sector criminals. Exchanges with their user data sets are lucrative targets for hackers that use this data to hack into individual accounts, attempt to fish their victims, or even try to sell the data to more hardcore criminals that may invade Bitcoiners' homes. So if you need some motivation to strengthen your privacy, he says, read through Jameson Lopp's list of known physical Bitcoin attacks. The swarm, as Satoshi described the government's agents, will always be on the way, will be upon us, rather, all the way to the end game of hyper-Bitcoinization. As tempting to be lulled by Michael Saylor's fiery sermons of Fidelity's flattering studies putting Bitcoin up on a pedestal. But the well-capitalized, well-connected power movers will always hold their own, no matter what happens to the common men fighting for their livelihoods. So... Here's the bottom line. Opting out of the legacy fiat structures and taking possession over what is rightfully ours is the ultimate form of protest. Bitcoin is an insurance against a state gone rogue. And he says we should thank the government of Canada for reminding us of the true value of independent money via Bitcoin. Now, this again, this is just one cryptocurrency, and I'm not suggesting Bitcoin is the only thing you should be considering. But I really was, I was very hesitant before to get on board the cryptocurrency bandwagon until I recognized that uh, government sees this as a threat. 
and told me I can't have it. And you know what happens when they tell me I can't have something? <laughs> Let's just say a, a contest of wills ensues. And I'm pretty strong-willed. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So I'm going to mention this. I have a new sponsor on the program, and it is GovernYourCrypto.com. There is a link provided in my sponsor links, which are in the show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com, or you can just go directly to GovernYourCrypto.com. I'm not telling you that this is the only, you know, cryptocurrency you should consider buying. I'm just, uh, I'm making it easy for people who are trying to get into crypto for the very first time to be able to do so. And so click on the link, see if it's for you. If it is great, if not, that's fine too. But I think most people who are watching and paying attention can recognize your money sitting in the bank. It may feel safe at the moment, but if somehow you catch the wrong bureaucrat's eye, um, that's that's very uh, it's it's very tenuous as to whether or not you will retain control over your money. I mean, it's not. I know that we think, well, that's only criminals that they would freeze their accounts and so forth. Yeah, that's what I would have thought too, until I saw what happened in Canada, and then I realized, no, even average people, even just people trying to support people who are standing up for their freedoms. I mean, the, look, the, the conflict's been going on for a long time. It's just moving into a much more personal and nasty phase. So maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea to, to hold some crypto, if, if not only, if, if for no other reason, just for the purpose of, hey, because there are people in these control structures, the systems that are trying to rule us, who don't want us to. So maybe the best thing to do is let's disobey them. There's nothing inherently evil or criminal about, you know, holding cryptocurrency. But you but you better do it right. If you're doing it strictly through regulated exchanges, yeah, you're, you're playing into their hands. They'll still be waiting for you at every entry and exit point. I want to share with you an article here by Larry White. This was published earlier this month. How to think straight about Bitcoin's social costs and benefits. Pick this up off the Future of Freedom Foundation website, fff.org. Larry White says, building a bridge is costly. It takes labor and machinery and raw materials that have alternative uses. Does it follow that building it is a waste? No. Waste occurs when the cost incurred exceeds the benefit attained. Cost greater than zero does not imply cost cost greater than benefit. Does it follow that a bridge is worth building? No, again. A bridge to nowhere might be built even though it's wasteful if the beneficiaries don't bear the costs themselves. So to know whether a particular bridge is worth building, we have to compare benefit to cost. Now, to count benefits and costs, we observe market prices and transaction quantities. None of us has access to a godlike perspective. Consequently, for normal private goods where costs and benefits fall on producers and consumers, economists normally defer to the judgments of the market participants who actually bear the costs about whether the benefits of an activity exceed its costs. Buyers presumably value a good more than the price they pay, or they wouldn't buy. And the producers incur average costs that are less than that price, or they would exit the industry. In the case of Bitcoin, 
the electricity bills for proof of work are ultimately paid by the Bitcoin users, just as the costs of production for bread and milk are borne by the buyers of bread and milk. Bitcoin users pay directly when they pay blockchain fees and indirectly when new Bitcoin is awarded to miners. Enlarging the stock of Bitcoin and diluting the purchasing power per unit compared to what it would have been with a constant stock. So for Bitcoin, as for other goods, a useful accounting needs to consider both costs and benefits. Proponents of Bitcoin have been known to downplay the costs or even count them as benefits, while opponents have been known to downplay the benefits and even count them as costs. So here he goes into downplaying the costs and says, Bitcoin proponents sometimes emphasize that Bitcoin mining operations are able to locate wherever electricity can be produced with least cost, such as natural gas fields where excess gas would otherwise be burned off, or remote hydroelectric plants with few alternative consumers. And Bitcoin miners plugged into a regular electricity grid will shut down quickly to free electricity for other users during times of peak load that push the price per kilowatt hour above the miners' break-even point. So these abilities reduce the opportunity cost of Bitcoin's electricity use compared to the counterfactual of using only high-cost electricity. But it doesn't make the cost zero or turn it into a benefit. Now, proponents applaud the fact that the Bitcoin mining industry draws a higher proportion of its electricity from renewable or sustainable or non-polluting sources than other industries. But using electricity from those sources of electricity is still a cost and not a benefit of Bitcoin. Green energy is still costly to generate. So when Bitcoin mining helps to finance expenditure on materials and labor to build new electricity generating facilities or on repairs and maintenance crews to bring old facilities back into operation, that's not a benefit that Bitcoin provides by comparison to crypto assets that use less energy. That's a cost. Building or refitting power plants is a costly use of labor and material resources, even if the new facilities burn no fossil fuel and emit no carbon. What about downplaying the benefits? European Central Bank economists Ulrich Beinsil, Patrick Papsdorf, and Jürgen Schaff, hereafter BPS, <clears throat> labeling Bitcoin an encrypted threat, have written that because the Bitcoin network comes with a large energy hunger due to its reliance on proof of work, it therefore wastes power. But Larry White says that's a non sequitur to leap to that conclusion without considering its benefits. It doesn't follow, even when stated in a comparative fashion, as when they suggest that Bitcoin is wasteful because the proof-of-work method of processing transactions uses more energy per transaction than alternative methods like proof-of-stake or like the status quo banking system. But he says to avoid rushing prematurely to judgments like these, we need to consider the benefits that could be attributed to the proof-of-work protocol. To say that the proof-of-work method is wasteful simply because it uses more energy is to suppose that it provides zero benefits or no greater privacy, no greater security, no greater credibility of the release schedule over a payment system run by proof-of-stake or, or on a single central ledger. But the assumption of zero benefits is inconsistent with the observation that some users prefer proof-of-work systems. Now he goes into a pretty detailed explanation here. I'm not going to have time to go into all of it, but I want to skip ahead here. He talks about that in the event that the value of Bitcoin were to go to zero, because I know this is a concern for people who are thinking about jumping into, you know, Bitcoin in particular. He says investors would give back the gains they enjoyed during Bitcoin's rise from zero to its peak. 
Laurie White says the episode would represent a, let not, a net loss rather for society in the sense that the cost of labor and the machines and the electricity used would not be offset by any gain to third parties. But do you realize that's true of every investment project on Earth? The failure of any particular firm or even an industry, wiping out the equity of shareholders and the value of some specific physical and human capital, does not abridge property rights or impoverish those who avoided investing or working for it. Rather, investing in or working for it. Larry White says, in a free economy, we therefore let entrepreneurs take risks. In cases where they succeed, by the same logic, the net gains are net social. The gains, rather, are net social gains. Society as a whole benefits from the superior economic growth of an economic system where entrepreneurs are free to innovate and free to fail. Now, he says, by the way, to say that Bitcoin will not have generated value for society apart from temporary hopes of speculative gain is to ignore the fact that Bitcoin is not just a gambling game. It generates value in a second way by providing an alternative payment rail for transactions or donations that need to route around a censorious central bank to reach government-disfavored recipients. That's about as clear as you can put it right there. And think about the people who are those uh, government-disfavored recipients. They're not Charles Manson. They're not Osama bin Laden. They're just average people often, as as we saw in Canada. So isn't it good to have that alternative? Well, that depends on on who you talk to. Certainly to the central bankers, no, this is not a good thing. But Larry White says to view such transactions as problematic, meaning Bitcoin or cryptocurrency transactions, as a cost rather than a benefit, would be to view things like a state advocate rather than like a consumer advocate. So this is one of those interesting dividing lines that's appearing right before our eyes. And it's, it really comes down to statism versus the rights of the individual. Look, if a person's behavior is peaceful, it's none of the state's business. What they're doing with their money or how they're earning it. Because, again, if, they, if, they're, if their methods are peaceful, then they're not victimizing or defrauding anybody. So the state really shouldn't be a part of it. But the state realizes there's an awful lot of control in controlling currency. That's why we're forced to use little colored pieces of paper under legal tender laws. Treat that as money. Why? Because we say so. But only if you behave. Only if you're a good boy or a good girl. Well, I'm sorry, but we're not dogs, so maybe we'll just do our own thing. What do you think of that? This is The Brian Hyde Show. Trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. It's not your imagination. It is getting harder and harder to tell what is true and what is not. Now, I'm not here to tell you what to think, but I am here to help you with that process of sorting out fact from fiction, substance from smokescreen, 
and help you find your your place to 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 view the world as it is without uh, being steered into a convenient conclusion that benefits somebody who really just wants to rule you and your life. So I'm glad you're with us. Come come sit, come enjoy. Come for the conversation, stay for the wrong think. I'm glad you're here. We have great sponsors who make this program possible, including HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, The Heather Turner Team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and GovernYourCrypto.com. So I, I was looking at some Facebook memories the other day, and one that really caught my eye was one that I uh, posted almost exactly two years ago, in which I said, you know, I think this is the single biggest shift that I have seen in in my lifetime. And it was that shift from, you know, okay, so there's a pandemic to lockdown, schools shut down, church shut down. Everywhere you went, billboards, you know, electronic billboards, please stay at home, please, you know, isolate at home, do not travel, do not go around, do not be on the roads. And it was the craziest thing. My son had just taken a job as a security guard, and um, so because he didn't have a car of his own, sometimes it fell to me or my wife to take him to and from work. And it was the strangest thing ever to be driving along the Wasatch Front, which is a very populated area. I mean, the traffic is legendary. But to see the freeways almost devoid of cars, I mean, it was it was encouraging on the one hand. It's very nice, the most pleasant driving I've ever done you know, throughout the Wasatch Front, but it was it was very strange, surreal. There was a huge just sense of, whoa, what has happened? Do you remember what you were doing two years ago? Do you remember the, the, the shock, the, the concern that people had? I mean, even just going out and walking around the neighborhood. People are masked up, you know, and if they say, oh, cross the street because we don't even want to be within, you know, 20 feet of you, let alone six feet. Got an article here from Julie Kelly. This is from AmericanGreatness.com. A powerful reminder of how we went from 15 days to two years and how March 16th of 2020 should be a date that will live in infamy. She says, on, a, on Saturday morning, my daughter in college texted me. I got sent home two years ago today. It feels like a dream. And Julie Kelly says, after I responded, she sent an uncharacteristically brief reply. Sad. To say the least, Julie Kelly says in March 2020, once free citizens around the world surrendered their liberty and livelihoods in a futile attempt to stop a virus. The most technologically advanced civilization in the history of mankind quickly adopted medieval fixes that bordered on quackery, sold by snake oil salesmen in the credentialed class and news media, codified through executive fiat by elected leaders of both parties. Just 15 days, we were told on March 16th of 2020, to slow the spread. Do your part to promote the common good, the historical rallying cry of every wannabe despot, or be branded a heartless heretic. And it worked. Far better than the original architects probably anticipated. She says, on the same day that my daughter left her college dormitory in upstate New York, not to return to a normal campus life for two years, I posted this on Twitter. This is what the left wants. They want people stripped of wealth, isolated, and terrified. They want sources of joy, church, sporting events, vacations, large social gatherings, eliminated. This is how they get control. And it's far scarier than any virus. 
Now, Julie Kelly says to say that that was a very unpopular view at the time would be an understatement. But having sponsored or having covered rather the climate change movement for years, she says I recognized a familiar approach to all the spread of to the spread of that COVID nineteen hysteria. Use flawed data to whip up a public frenzy and then shut down all debate in fealty to science. Any disagreement over the data, no matter how unreliable or how untested that data happened to be, and in the early months, the only available data came from China, made you a science denier, or worse. And she says, this time around, sadly, the hysteria wasn't pushed solely by lefty environmental activists, but also by Donald Trump, President Trump, Republican governors, and conservative influencers throughout the media. And once that buy-in was made, all hope was lost. Trump's catastrophic decision to acquiesce to the demands of doctors Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burks, the former a charlatan, the latter a dunce, and shut down the country two years ago this week, <clears throat> was by far the worst moment in his presidency, and rivals the worst moment in any presidency. As usual, however, Trump's first instinct, the one he suppressed to appease those demanding we honor the science, was the right one. The cure should not be worse than the, than the disease, he fretted. He knew it. But he listened to the quacks anyway. And the cure, of course, got worse. Emboldened by their success in forcing Trump to authorize the first 15-day shutdown, the then-adored Fauci and Burks took it a step further. With two dubious projection models in hand, the pair went to the White House at the end of March 2020 and convinced Trump to extend the lockdowns another month. That decision sealed his fate. The booming economy he helped build entered a death spiral. Which is why the left will try this again. Pandemic lockdowns produced all sorts of benefits for Democrats, including outcomes the environmental movement had been dreaming about for five decades. Fossil fuel use plummeted as airline and vehicle traffic screeched to a halt. Meat prices soared. Commercial buildings in large energy-consuming cities sat vacant. Lockdowns, one international energy group cheered, resulted in a new worldwide low of CO2 emissions in 2020. They said the decline in emissions is without precedent in human history. Broadly speaking, this is the equivalent of removing all of the European Union's emissions from the global total. End quote. Now, Julie Kelly says just as those figures started to rebound, the Russian-Ukraine war presented an ideal opportunity to institute a soft form of lockdowns, with gas prices rapidly rising to historical highs. Americans are voluntarily limiting their own energy use. She says the Biden administration fully admits the conflict will accelerate plans to move the country's energy independence from gas and oil to wind and solar, achieving Biden's pledge to cut carbon emissions in half by 2030. The Build Back Better plan, intended to reset U.S. priorities post-pandemic, devotes at least $550 billion for a once-in-a-generation once investments in clean energy and infrastructure that can help tackle the climate crisis. And Julie Kelly says aside from advancing long-term climate goals, the lockdowns contributed to an even bigger score for Biden and the Democrats in 2020, stealing the presidential election. In May 2020, the CDC issued guidance that gave a scientific imprimatur to Democrats' long-desired changes to voting laws, including lax use of absentee ballots. A record number of mail-in ballots, millions of which were unlawfully handled before Election Day, resulted in Trump's purported defeat. 
And with heavy losses expected in November, Democrats will try election-related lockdowns again. The weeks leading up to Election Day happen to coincide with the annual flu season, so the Democrats, including incumbent governors in tight races, will likely attempt the winning 2020 formula once again. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, the only leader to express regret for authorizing shutdowns in his state, under pressure at time by the Trump White House, questioned whether the science will change because you have a midterm election coming up, noting that the Democrats didn't reverse their COVID panic until they saw dismal polling results. But will the public fall for it? Well, Julie Kelly says, given what we've witnessed over the past two years, unfortunately, the answer may be yes. Millions of our countrymen have revealed themselves to be miserable sociopaths gratified by human suffering, especially that of children. These ghouls still rage at the sight of unmasked kindergartners and college football stadiums filled with joyous students. A healthy or rather unhealthy proportion of the American public will gladly do this all over again. She says they mourn the fact that life is slowly returning to normal, continuing to wear two face masks in a sign of defiance and solidarity with their fellow nutcases. For its part, the Biden regime is keeping the re-entry door to lockdowns open just enough to blow it wide open again months from now if necessary. The useless face mask mandate on airplanes and mass transit, for example, has been extended to April 18th. She says, despite how rich or popular those lockdowns made certain individuals or how pleased millions of Americans were at the sight of mass misery, the reality is that the lockdowns did immense damage across the globe that may never be fully calculated. The date of March 16th, 2020 isn't just a day that will live in infamy. It marked the beginning of the largest crime against humanity since the last world war. And her reminder is the perpetrators aren't finished yet. I happen to agree. This is why we've got to be vigilant. This is why if, if you said no before, you're going to have to say it again, and you've got to really mean it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I invite you to please go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. couple of reasons. One, I want you to click on a link there for lifesavingfoods.com. Lifesavingfood.com is the, uh, that is your food storage central hub. My friend Kendall Whiting will take very good care of you once you are there. I particularly would recommend if you're getting started, take a look at the ultimate solar and food storage package. This really, I mean, we're, we're, you're talking about, I, I'm going by memory here, but uh, I think it's roughly $600, but it's it's a great supply of food, but also the means to prepare it, as well as attend to another to, to other needs, including having clean water, etc. It's a very great place to start. It will bring peace of mind. Click on the link and see if you don't feel the same. You know... I've, I have been frustrated a lot over the last couple of years watching things happen. And of course, not knowing everything about it, not knowing exactly where this is going to take us, but, but recognizing enough of the patterns that I'm sure I would be, you know, qualified as a conspiracy theorist for, for pointing out uh, inconvenient things that, that seem to be shaping up. And it's very frustrating at times. But I would just like you to consider that stewing in anger and frustration isn't how we change the world for the better. In fact, I want to share with you an essay 
about what does change the world for the better. This is from Paul Rosenberg, one of my favorite writers, and it's The Habit of Excellence. He says, all healthy humans are capable of enjoying excellence, but more than that, they can enjoy sustained and repeated excellence. And it does feel good to excel, to know that you worked hard and accomplished something. It proves to us that we can improve, that we can rise, that we're able to achieve. Everyone needs that, and everyone can get that. Although he says many of us seldom or never do. So one of the most important lessons a young person can learn is how to excel, to learn that they have the capacity to excel. So let's talk about what excellence is and is not. In Ecclesiastes, you'll read, what it's, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. And Paul Rosenberg says that's good advice. But excellence, at least in this world, has limits. It's not automatic. It isn't possible in every area of life. And most importantly, it isn't easy. Excellence, he says, to be clear, is not the same as winning, even though the two sometimes coincide. This is not about dominance. Seeking to dominate puts us into a long downward slide, spawning some very unlovely characteristics. What we should prefer is to be repeatedly excellent, measured by our own internal standards. Now, you don't have enough time and energy to be excellent at everything you'll do in life. None of us do. So don't imagine that you're supposed to. That's a way to make yourself unhappy for life. As he noted earlier, excellence is hard, It requires focused energy and long, sometimes painful practice. But Paul Rosenberg says it is attainable and it is enjoyable. In fact, he says there's not much more satisfying than knowing that you did something important and difficult and you did it well. So how do you become excellent? Well, he says there is a prerequisite for excellence and that is knowing that you can. Now he says what I mean by that is not being told that you are wonderful. I mean knowing that you could achieve excellence based on actual excellence because you've actually done it. Mere praise, no matter how persistent and effusive, will never replace earned belief knowing that you worked, endured, and exhibited actual excellence. So how do we get that? Well, he says we most commonly learn it by being pushed into it, hopefully when we're young. Parents, of course, can get excellence started by teaching their children about it and very directly informing them of three things. Number one, you can be great at things, even many things. Number two, it's hard to do. You'll have to work and suffer and persist. You'll have to overcome obstacles, maybe many of them. And number three, there will always be an alternative that looks easier, that will lead you away from excellence, not toward it. Now that's honest advice and productive advice. The modern alternative, you're a special flower, and so on, is a setup for disappointment, pessimism, and depression. Now, he says, look, we are all special, of course, but that won't make you successful by magic. We still have to work, and sometimes we fail. Some of the most potent and enduring lessons in excellence come after puberty. Now, there are several reasons for this, but that's a long explanation. And he says, I don't know which of them are the most crucial. Probably they differ for each individual. But I do know that I've seen this in practice and repeatedly. It also seems necessary, at least for many young people, that they learn how to excel from someone other than mom and dad. Now, almost certainly this has to do with what psychologists call individuation. But what matters now is that this model seems consistent and even necessary. For these reasons, young people commonly learn the price of excellence and their capacity for excellence from coaches, mentors, and bosses. That is, from older people who demand hard things of them. 
We may also get it by observing in others and wanting it for ourselves, wanting it badly enough that we'll work for it. And that's an excellent way of attaining it. Another important step lies in choosing things to excel at. Some things simply aren't important enough to spend all that energy upon. Something not worth doing, as an old friend of mine used to say, is not worth doing well. I kind of like that. I may have to write that down. So let's talk about the habit of excellence. Paul Rosenberg says that excellence can become habitual. And in general, this is a very good and productive thing. It's one of the things many of us learn from hardworking parents. It's not so much that they tell us we should work hard, but that we see them day after day laboring, persevering, and attaining difficult things. If we see that consistently, we begin to form expectations of excellence, and that leads to the habit of excellence. Beneath the interplay of our daily thoughts sit our expectations. He says, I think of them as the crucible in which our decisions are formed. Whatever our expectations or deep beliefs may be, they will color and guide our choices. So expect to expect excellence of ourselves and our lives can be a powerful and long-lasting thing. Now, there can be better or worse varieties of this, of course. There are families that push or even force excellence upon their children for their own sakes. But he says that's an error. It's actually a type of abuse. It's not the child's purpose to make the parents look good, to make the family name great or any such thing. The purpose of the child is to improve themselves and improve the universe. That's what human life does. It, intelligent, it intelligently and willfully transcends entropy. We want to pass along the habit of excellence to our children, that we put in the necessary time and effort to do the important things and that we do them well. But again, we don't want to teach our children to do these things to make ourselves look good. We do it to make them better people and to make the future of our species better. So he says, to close, I'm going to leave you with two thoughts. The first is a great line that sums up a lot of this written by a man named David Weinstein. The important thing about winning is knowing that you can. Now, translating the comment into our terminology, we'd say the crucial thing about excellence is knowing that you can attain it. Because once you do and you feel the satisfaction of it, you can attain it regularly. The second thought is the importance of lowering standards. We can't be overbearing with excellence, like parents who demand it for their own status, but neither can we go the other way. He says, I recently had a discussion with a lady who was moving her family cross-country because the mindset prevailing where she had been was bereft of excellence. She didn't want her children to think like the children and families she observed there. She told me of a conversation with a local school superintendent who told her proudly, half our students meet the state average. That, she went on to say, was a very common attitude in the place, and she couldn't bear her children absorbing it. So the fact is that if you want your children to have friends, that you do want your children, rather, to have friends with high assumptions of life, and you may risk finding some who are arrogant, you know, such as those with elitist parents, but that can usually be worked around. What you don't want is your child adopting the belief that excellence is fraudulent or somehow unreachable. And he says to be very blunt about it, you don't want your children falling in love with such people who carry such beliefs. I like his take on this. And I think it's probably worthwhile to consider what am I doing in my own life that is uh, promoting or uh, helping to, to create excellence in what I'm doing. And I know this isn't going to be a popular observation, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. If it's not making you work at it, if you're not working up a figurative sweat in the process, it's probably not excellence that you're really pushing towards. So 
yeah, effort, sustained effort is required, but the end result is absolutely worth it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. I would uh, strongly recommend if you have someone in your family who really enjoys the arts of sewing, quilting, embroidery, and so forth, these are the folks you need to talk to. And man, do they have some of the most amazing uh, sewing implements on the planet, as well as all the supplies to to help get you going with, with your projects. And this is the most important part. They service what they sell. They can train you to use what you buy. I mean, you can't go wrong. And especially for my friends who are listening in southern Utah, this is the, the place where quilters, sewing enthusiasts, and designers buy their supplies, buy their machines, learn their skills, show them some love, do business with them, drop them an email, tell them, hey, Brian's talking about you. Let them know that their message reached your ears. Well, I, I don't want to get to, too political here, but I have a great article about the continued politicization of COVID. And I know Ukraine is kind of supposed to be where our attention should be focused right now. And and I don't say that from the standpoint of, boy, I'm just indifferent to the suffering of the Ukrainian people. Um, I think the people there are the ones who are on the losing end of this, uh, this bargain. Um, their government, though, I wouldn't trust it any more than I trust our government, and I certainly wouldn't trust Russia's government either. I think it's it's these these governments are the problem and the people unfortunately are caught in the middle. So, it's possible to stand with the people of Russia, to stand with the people of Ukraine, to stand with the people of the United States and not to stand with any of their governments. But that's kind of a hard sell when everybody is is kind of being whipped into a hysteria and oh look at this atrocity and what about this atrocity and and y- you don't even know who can you believe? How can you know what is true? So many things that were stated as fact. Well, you know, the ghost of Kiev has shot down 36 Russian planes. And then you find out, well, that's just, you know, that was a made-up story. Such things are very common during times of war. So I'm going to step back from the Ukraine thing for a moment and tell you, yeah, it's going on. But let's not forget the wrongs of the past two years. We cannot allow them to fade from our memories. And Dr. Brian Jundith warns about the continued politicization of COVID. He says, from the beginning of COVID two years ago, health authorities and the media have been preaching, follow the science. But what they don't say is that it's not medical science they're following, but instead political science. See, now that's a, that's a fair distinction. How else does one explain the sudden new rules and recommendations contradicting past settled science? Regarding everything from natural immunity to off-label therapeutics to the futility of masks and social distancing. It seems that overnight, the science changed with this viral pandemic due to an upcoming election and the convenient distraction of the Russian-Ukrainian war. Now, he asks, does anyone doubt that COVID would have played out far differently in 2020 if it had been President Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders running for re-election rather than Donald Trump? The Pew Research Center analyzed the COVID timeline (laughs) regarding voting patterns confirming the continued political lens which is being applied to COVID. 
Here's an excerpt from Pew's recent article, quote, In the spring of 2020, the areas recording the greatest number of deaths were much more likely to vote Democratic than Republican. But by the third wave of the pandemic, which began in fall of 2020, the pattern had reversed. Counties that voted for Donald Trump over Joe Biden were suffering substantially more deaths from the coronavirus pandemic than those that voted for Biden over Trump. Now, this reversal is likely a result of several factors, including differences in mitigation efforts and vaccine uptake, demographic differences and other differences that are correlated with partisanship at the county level, end quote. Now, Dr. June Def says, so it's political. Those ignorant and stubborn Republicans who wouldn't take the vaccine or wear masks are the sole cause of this discrepancy. No other explanation is possible, just as pickup driving Texans are the main reason the climate is changing, independent of solar activity and a host of other far more influential factors. Well, that sure sounds like what the, the media has been presenting, doesn't it? Yet he points out in the same article, Pew debunks their political argument. Quote, in many cases, the characteristics of communities that were associated with higher death rates at the beginning of the pandemic are now associated with lower death rates and vice versa. Early in the pandemic, urban areas were disproportionately impacted. During the first wave, the coronavirus death rate in the 10% of the country that lives in the most densely populated counties was more than nine times that of the death rate among 10% of the population living in the least densely populated counties. In each subsequent wave, however, the nation's least dense counties have, res- have registered higher death rates than the most densely populated places, end quote. Now, Dr. June Death says, no kidding. Viruses spread from person to person, so it makes sense that densely populated inner cities would suffer far more and earlier than rural areas. And those densely populated areas tend to vote Democratic. Now, this is association, not causation. Ladies who play bingo tend to be older and have blue hair. Is that due to them playing bingo or is that just an association? Good example. Once the virus spreads through inner cities, most residents have been exposed and infected, conferring natural immunity, protecting them from subsequent waves and strains of the virus. He says, if anything, these first waves affected the lower socioeconomic class, the essential workers who kept hospitals and grocery stores open, while the latte-sipping Zoom class hustled out of town to rural America where they could maintain their incomes and lifestyles far from what at the time were inner-city death zones. Dr. June Death says, look, viruses are small and dumb. They, don't, they have no brain, they don't think, they look for suitable hosts regardless of race, color, religion, gender, or politics. Medical factors may determine who gets sicker or dies, but not who becomes infected. If Republicans populated inner cities and the Democrats lived in the suburbs and more rural areas more so than they all do now, these political associations would be reversed. So this is hardly news as the virus is something one can run from but you can't hide from. Ask countries which initially followed a zero-COVID policy like New Zealand, with low case rates at first but whose rates are now exploding. Blaming vaccine hesitancy, he says, is disingenuous, too. The U.K. government reported that the fully vaccinated now account for 9 in every 10 COVID-19 deaths in England. Oh, he's got the link if you want to follow it and see for yourself. This isn't something he pulled out of thin air. And it was similar in Israel, as NPR noted. Highly vaccinated Israel is seeing a dramatic surge in new COVID cases. And at least in, two of the, at least in these two medically advanced countries... 
It's not the unvaccinated that are driving cases and deaths. So while Pew was trying to politicize COVID, the New York Times, in a surprisingly and unexpected act of journalism, threw cold water on COVID being a politically motivated virus, as reported by the Daily Caller. Quote, a senior writer at the New York Times said, vaccinations, booster shots, and masks have not caused a major difference in case rates between parts of the country with different levels of COVID-19 precautions in a Wednesday morning newsletter. The newsletter compared COVID-19 case rates for Democratic and Republican areas, noting that Democrats were more likely to wear masks, get vaccinated and boosted, avoid public spaces, and shut down in-person schools over virus fears. These factors seem as they should have caused, as if they should have caused large differences in case rates. They have not. And they haven't offered, that they haven't, offers some clarity about the relative effectiveness of different COVID interventions. That's according to David Leonhardt in the newsletter. End quote. So Dr. June Def says, unfortunately, this realization is two years too late. What changed from two years ago? When many were saying the same thing, only to be banned from social media, employment, and polite society. Well, from the get-go, everything President Trump suggested was immediately castigated, from travel bans and the lab origins of the virus to hydroxychloroquine and other uh, potential medical therapeutics. If a Republican president dared mention it, the media and big medicine followed political science rather than well-established medical science, and they declared it misinformation. Dr. June Def asks, how much damage and carnage could have been avoided if COVID hadn't been politicized? How many lives were lost and families and businesses destroyed because politics ruled the day rather than science? History will judge this era harshly and deservedly so. Now, I'm not going to insist that you have to agree with what Dr. Brian June Def, MD, is saying about this. But I do think it's worth considering. And I, I love his distinction. I've, I'm, I'm assimilating this into my own, you know, worldview now. It really was. To follow the science was a call to follow political science, not medical science. And I think one of the biggest dangers that we face right now is the idea that uh, we're not only supposed to not notice this, but we're supposed to sweep it under the rug and pretend that, uh, oh, well, you know, none of that really happened. And, and, uh, but uh, just to be fair, we will do it again if we feel the need. Oh, I have no doubt that there are people who are just waiting to institute the next lockdown. And this is why it's essential that these tools be taken from their hands so they can't be used against us at some future point. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage located in St. George, Utah. If you are looking for a home loan anywhere within the great state of Utah, I would encourage you, please talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. It's very easy to do. Heather has decades of experience in the in the industry. She knows what you need. She knows what the lender needs. She can make it happen and happen quickly, which you kind of need in a very competitive real estate market. So call her at 435-703-4522. 
If you're in St. George, swing by her office at 619 South Bluff Street, Tower 1 and Tower 2. You can uh, note that uh, Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender and Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. So I'm, I'm sorry to still be banging the COVID drum, but I am doing so not out of uh, a sense of I want to make you afraid or I want to make you angry. I'm, I'm doing this because I think it's very clear that the threat, not from the virus, but from the response to the virus, has not dissipated. It's, it's still there. In fact, I saw a tweet from the Consent Factory, which has, I think, a really great take on this. Um, It's just simply, it's a picture of Klaus Schwab. Yes, president of the World Economic Forum. And, And the caption here says, yes, we turned off the apocalyptic plague like a light switch. Be grateful and don't ask what the last two years were really about, or we'll turn it back on again. That sure does seem to be the case. And it's just, it's beyond getting, it's getting beyond ludicrous right now. Do you realize highly vaxxed, masked South Korea is currently averaging over 300,000 new cases and 200 deaths per day? How much have you heard about that in the media right now? Nope. Nope. And yet uh, the the liberals are still under the impression, you know, according to, to a tweet that I just saw here, that, that these measures still work. We're going to keep them just in case. There's also the implication of COVID antibodies found in stored blood from September to November of 2019 in European blood banks. How could there be COVID antibodies from that far back? I mean, that means that uh, long before the official start date, it was too late to stop the disease from spreading across the earth. It would mean we wasted two years on lockdowns for nothing. By the way, that's according to Dr. J. Bhattacharya, one of the signers of the Great Barrington Declaration. I know it's been a tough time for a lot of people. You may have had to find a new tribe due to the COVID insanity. So hopefully you're in good company now. Hopefully you've found people who have the same values that you do and aren't uh, trying to force, you know, whatever it is on you. Why aren't you wearing your mask? Are you vaxxed? You can't come to my birthday party if you're not. Gabriel Bauer has a very clear message for the people who chose shaming over science. She says, for the first time, for the first many decades of my life, I don't recall anyone calling me a selfish idiot, much less a sociopath or a mouth-breathing Trump tard. But she says, all that changed when COVID rolled in and I expressed ever so gingerly a few concerns about the lockdown policies. She says, here's a sampling of what the keyboard warriors threw back at me. Enjoy your sociopathy. Go lick a pole and catch the virus. Have fun choking on your own fluids in the ICU. Name three loved ones that you're ready to sacrifice to COVID. Do it now, coward. You went to Harvard. Yeah, right. And I'm God. Last I checked, Harvard doesn't accept troglodytes. Now, she says, from the earliest days of the pandemic, something deep inside me, in my soul, if you will, recoiled from the political and public response to the virus. Nothing about it felt right or strong or true. This was not just an epidemiological virus, or crisis rather, but a societal one. So why were we listening exclusively to some select epidemiologists? Where were the mental health experts, the child development specialists, the historians, the economists? And why were our political leaders encouraging fear rather than calm? 
She says, the questions that troubled me the most had less to do with epidemiology than with ethics. Was it fair to require the greatest sacrifice from the youngest members of society who stood to suffer the most from the restrictions? Should civil liberties simply disappear during a pandemic, or did we need to balance public safety with human rights? Unschooled in the ways of online warriors, she says, I assumed the Internet would allow me to engage in productive discussions about these issues, so I hopped online, and the rest was hysteria. Village idiot, flat earther, inbred trash, negative IQ. She says, let's just say that my thin skin got the test of a lifetime. But she says it wasn't just me. Anyone who questioned the orthodoxy, whether expert or ordinary citizen, got a similar skin burn. In the words of one community physician who, for obvious reasons, shall remain anonymous, many doctors, including myself, along with virologists, epidemiologists, and other scientists, advocated a targeted approach and a focus on the most vulnerable cohorts of patients, only to be dismissed as anti-science. Tinfoil hat kooks, conspiracy theorists, anti-vax, and other equally colorful disparaging labels. Now, she says, early in the game, I decided I wouldn't respond to such insults with more insults. Not because I'm especially high-minded, but because mudslinging contests just leave me angry, and it's not fun to walk around angry all day. So I took the the shaming on the chin instead and still walked around angry. Now, she says, the shaming impulse asserted itself right from the start of the pandemic. On Twitter, hashtag COVIDiot began trending on the evening of March 22nd, 2020. And by the time the night was over, 3,000 tweets had co-opted the hashtag to denounce poor public health practices. When CBS News posted a video of spring breakers partying in Miami, outraged citizens shared the students' names in their social media networks, accompanied by such missives as, do not give these selfish dumb blanks beds and or respirators. In the early days of the pandemic, when panic and confusion reigned, and such indignation could perhaps be forgiven... But she says the shaming gained momentum and wove itself into the zeitgeist. Also, it didn't work. As noted by Harvard Medical School epidemiologist Julia Marcus, shaming and blaming people is not the best way to get them to change their behavior and actually can be counterproductive because it makes people want to hide their behavior. Along similar lines, Jan Balkus, an infectious disease specialist at University of Washington, maintains that shaming can make it harder for people to acknowledge situations where they have, may have encountered risk. So, if shaming COVID-idiots for their behavior doesn't accomplish much, you can be sure that shaming people for wrong think won't change any minds. Instead, we heretics simply stop telling the shamers what we're thinking. We nod and smile, we give them the match point, and continue the debate in our own heads. Now, she says, for two years, I've been that person. I've smiled politely while dodging insults to put my interlocutors at ease. I've prefaced my heterodox opinions with disclaimers like, I dislike Trump as much as you do, or for the record, I'm triple vaxxed myself. But she says, just today, I'll allow myself to drop the pandering and call it as I see it. She says, to everyone who dumped on me for questioning the shutdown of civilization and damage it inflicted on the young and poor, You can take your shaming, your scientific posturing, your insufferable insufferable moralizing, and stuff it. Every day, new research knocks more air out of your smug pronouncements. You told me that without lockdowns, COVID would have wiped out a third of the world, much as the Black Death decimated Europe in the 14th century. Instead, a Johns Hopkins meta-analysis concluded that lockdowns in the U.S. and and Europe reduced COVID-19 mortality by an average of 0.2%. What's more, 
Before long, this long before this study, rather, we had good evidence that anything less than a China-style door-welding lockdown wouldn't do much good. In a 2006 paper, the World Health Organization writing group affirmed that mandatory case reporting and isolating patients during the influenza pandemic of 1918 did not stop virus transmission and were impractical. You told me that social interaction is a want, not a need. Well, yes, so is good food. In truth, social isolation kills. As reported in a September 2020 review article published in Cell, loneliness may be the most potent threat to survival and longevity. You told me we need not worry about the effects of COVID restrictions on children because kids are resilient. And besides, they had it much worse in the Great Wars. Meanwhile, the UK saw a 77% increase in pediatric referrals for issues like self-harm and suicidal thoughts during a six-month period in 2021 in relation to a similar stretch in 2019. You told me vaccinated people don't carry the virus, taking your cue from CDC Director Rochelle Walensky's proclamation in early 2021. And we know how well that aged. You had no business, you told me I had no business questioning what infectious disease experts were telling us to do. I'm paraphrasing here. What you actually said was, how about staying in your lane and shutting the F up? So yeah, she says, I'm upset. And your finger-wagging posse left me alienated enough that I had to go looking for new tribes. And in this quest, I have been rather successful. She says, I found more kindred spirits than I could ever have imagined in my city of Toronto and all over the world. Doctors, nurses, scientists, farmers, musicians, and homemakers who share my distaste for your grandstanding. Oh, by the way, epidemiologists too. And she says, these fine folks have kept me from losing my mind. So Gabrielle Bauer says, thank you and get off my lawn. I know it's a little bit of attitude, but uh, I think it's well-deserved attitude. And I don't disagree with her. This is The Brian Hyde Show.